Awesome. Thomas is doing great. That's awesome. Uh, it's a great day to be in the house of the Lord. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 1. We're going to begin a new sermon series here uh, called The Heart of the Matter. We're going to journey from now throughout the rest of the summer through the book of 1 Samuel. Um, and so if you ha- have a copy of God's Word, you want to get a head start there. If you don't, there's a Bible in the back, and we would love to give that to you as a gift. Um, it's our heart to you. 1 Samuel is in the Old Testament. It is the ninth book. If you want to go about 20% of the way, go to the left. Go about 20% of the way in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel is where we are going to be today. And I hope you guys had a good Easter. Anybody, everybody have a good Easter? Hopefully. Um, We had a good Easter here. We had a great Easter. God is moving and working and literally transforming lives. We had people give their lives to the Lord last week, rededicate their lives. But the the same God that was moving last week is moving this week, and we're so thankful for the opportunity we have to worship Him. We love to worship through wor- the Word. We love to worship through singing. We love to worship through giving. And so, if you uh, would love to help us finish the month strong, there's opportunities to give back in tithes and offerings in the back there and um, online. And so thankful for all that God is doing. Um, as we get ready to jump in, I got a question for you. We love class participation here, right? We love to just engage the text. And so, uh, I would love for you to think with me, if you would, uh, what was one of the, your favorite games or activities growing up when you were a kid? to play with other kids in your neighborhood or whatnot. Anybody, anybody got something they want to shout out real fast? What did you like to do? What did you like to play? Hide and seek. That's awesome. That's a great one. And uh, our, our, my friends and I would play that. We would also do this. We would also play, go around the neighborhood. We would go out for hours on end. Never tell our mom anywhere. Imagine that, parents, right now, right? With Before cell phones. Where's your kid? Oh, I don't know. He'll be home for dinner, uh, right? Um, but we would go around the neighborhood, and we would look for any, any space, a hill. We would look for a pile of leaves. If we're near water, we would look for a floating dock. And we'd play this game called king of the hill, um, where the object was, right, to be the last person continually standing on top of whatever surface you were. And if you weren't standing there, the object was to take out the person standing there, well, by any means necessary, right? And so you're you're trying to knock them off the perch because they're on the hill. There is only room for one a king. Now, as we begin our new Heart of the series, uh, Heart of the Matter series, we're going to see the reality that not only is there room for only one king of the hill, but even in a more important area of our lives where eternity hangs in the balance, there is only room for one king of our hearts king of our hearts. You see, the, first, the whole story of 1 Samuel, really the whole story of the Bible, is a search uh, in, uh, for who is sitting on the throne of your heart. And the question is, is it you or is it God? Because there's only room for one. As we're going to see throughout the entire book of 1 Samuel, the, the battle for our hearts it rages. Anybody feel like you're in a battle today, right? We celebrated the reality last week that Jesus has won the victory. He's won the war. Praise God. Amen. But the battle rages daily, hourly, minute by minute. And you know what the often the battlefield is? The primary battlefields are your hearts, my heart, and your minds. On the battlefield, as we will see in 1 Samuel, we will see this. We will see that our battlefield, the battlefield of our heart is covered on a daily basis with giants we must fight. We're going to see that in 1 Samuel. His name's Goliath. Fears we must face, pain we must carry, wounds we must nurse, threats we must detect, adversity we must walk through, priorities we must clarify, choices we must make. And at the who to trust, what is worth sacrificing for, what desires am I ultimately living for, and all of these daily, ongoing, hour-by-hour, minute-by-minute decisions are revealing who ultimately sits on the throne of our hearts. Is it myself or is it our savior? And that decision, these decisions will lead us down a path of destruction 
or deliverance. So friends, again, my question for you and God's question for you today, and really every week of the series, every day of our lives is who is on the throne of your heart? You see, the heart of the matter is that it's a matter of your heart. The heart of the matter is it's a matter of your heart. You're looking for hope. You're looking for joy. You're looking for peace. You're looking for uh, purpose. You're looking for salvation. All of those things that we are all looking for, whether you admit it or not, are all anchored in the condition of your heart and who sits on the throne of your heart. And I want to tell you this, that the story of 1 Samuel is a story of priests and prophets and kings. It's a story of a people searching for a king to lead them, to love them, to protect them, to satisfy them, to save them. And while the context might be a little bit different, the reality is still the same because you and I, we're searching for a king, aren't we? We're searching for someone or something to put our hope in, to save us, to deliver us. And the reality is every decision that we make, we're either rebelling against God or we're living in reverence to God. And those decisions will determine how much hope we actually experience. The book of 1 Samuel will have great victories and epic failures. The reality is, is that even anyone's fallacy that the Bible is not relevant and that the Bible is boring will be destroyed as we read 1 Samuel, right? Any Lord of the Rings fans are in here, right? Think of your favorite fantasy novel. Think of your favorite fantasy TV series. It cannot hold a candle to the reality of 1 Samuel. But more than a game of thrones, which this is, this is a war of worship, a war of worship. And more than anything, God is after your hearts this morning and every morning. Who are you worshiping? Who are you ascribing worth to? Who are you elevating? The world, this world is full of hurt and life is hard, is it not? But there is hope. There's hope in the name of Jesus. And so today we're going to meet a character. The first character that we're going to meet today, or one of them, is her name is Hannah. We're going to meet Hannah a woman who is down on her luck, to put it lightly, and more accurately is devastated, is demoralized, with emotions that are swirling literally like a, a, in a whirlwind, feeling bitter, weeping, distressed, distraught, full of anxiety. So I don't know what you walked in here with, but if you're carrying heavy burdens, if you have a weight on you of unmet desires or uncertain future that you do not know what to do with, if you are experiencing persecution from the world and other people mocking you, making fun of you, if you're wondering where is God in the middle of all of this that is swirling around you, Hannah can relate to you. And we're going to see that from the text today. Well, the beautiful thing that we're going to see, the decisive thing that we're going to see in Hannah's life is that in the middle of all of that, she chooses to run to God as, allowing, as opposed to allowing those things to push her away from God. And that decision makes all the difference. It's not in how good or not good our circumstances are. It's where are we looking for hope? Where are we sourcing our strength in the middle of those difficulties? I don't know what your pain is. I don't know what your scars are. I don't know what the trauma that you've experienced or are experiencing. I don't know exactly what your deep wounds are, but I'm gonna ask you, I'm gonna ask you to go on a journey. I'm gonna ask you to trust God most importantly. And secondarily, hopefully trust God's word. And thirdly, trust me. I'm gonna ask you to open your heart I'm going to ask you to open the, take the bandaid off and expose the scars in your life because I believe that God wants to do a healing work in this place this morning. 
And as we search for hope, I pray that he would meet us here as we open our hearts and open our lives to him, as we meet him there in a profound way. Today, we're gonna see in 1 Samuel this big idea that is as relevant today as it was for Hannah, that in my barrenness, God always demonstrates his faithfulness. In my barrenness, God always demonstrates his faithfulness. The direct, actual, specific context of barrenness in this text is the lack of ability to, to give birth to a child, to conceive and give birth to a child. You can extrapolate that application out because barrenness means the lack of something, the inability to do something. I don't know what in your life is lacking today. I don't know what is void, what that void is that you're deeply desiring. Maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a child, maybe it's a grandchild, maybe it's a job, maybe it's better health, maybe it's purpose, maybe it's military advancement or career advancement. I don't know what it is, but even when your life feels void and empty and barren, we're gonna see today the reality that into my barrenness, God is continuing his faithfulness. And that gives us hope, does it not? Because our hope is not anchored in our circumstance, but our hope is anchored in the character of God in the middle of every circumstance of life. The God who's been faithful before will be faithful again. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I just thank you so much for who you are. I thank you for the beautiful reality of your testimony of faithfulness. God, and in these moments, as we go into deep waters, as we enter into sensitive topics, in areas that have caused and do cause and are causing a lot of anxiety and worry and pain. We come humbly, we come faithfully, and we come broken. We are broken, God, and we need you. You are our healer, you are our restorer, God, into our marriages, into our relationships, into the void, God, you bring your healing and your help. And God, in this moment, I pray that you would silence me and Holy Spirit, that you would speak powerfully lovingly, compassionately. And God, that you would hold the hearts of every single person online and in this room, that you would hold them in the palm of your hand and that you would do the work that you want to do, that you would restore and that you would just rebuild, that you would renew hope, that you would heal our heartache, that you would carry our burdens and that you would do whatever you want to do. In your name we pray, amen. We're gonna be in 1 Samuel chapter one. If you wanna get a head start there, flip with there. But before we launch fully in a little context to help understand, we love God's word here at Harvest. Um, this is what we anchor our life in. And we really believe that God wrote a book, a book without error, 66 of them, books comprised into God's word. It, it dictates our life and we delight in it. We love it. And one of our greatest joys here is to understand how each book fits into the bigger picture of God's word called the meta narrative. From Genesis to Revelation, God's story is one of redemptive hope. It's one of rescue of God redeeming and restoring and lavishing his love on undeserving people like you and me. So how and where does 1 Samuel fit in? Well, if you actually, the book right before 1 Samuel is the book of Ruth. And if you look to your left, if you have your Bible open, you'll see the last word of the book of Ruth. What's the last word of the book of Ruth? It's David. So David, so Ruth was a Moabite woman. She was an outsider who God made an insider due, due to his redeeming love. He adopted her into his family through his faithfulness. He, she was a foreigner made family and God can do the same thing for you and I. And she was then became the great grandmother of King David and was in the family line of Jesus Christ. And now that propels us into the book of first Samuel where we will see the nation of Israel continue to grow and mature. They're gonna struggle and they're gonna have heartache and, and hiccups and hangups. But through it all, we're gonna see them matriculate to the point of David becoming king towards the end of the, the, the 
journey. And all of this is pointing ultimately to the one true king, Jesus Christ. So all of this is pointing to the ultimate King Jesus. That's the whole aspect of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel tells the story of God's people and their constant heart struggle to submit to and obey God. Sound familiar? Because it's not just their story. Guess whose story it is? My story our story. It's a story of often misplaced hope where they go, we want a king. Why? Because, well, our neighbors have a king. Ever have that in your life? I want a job because my neighbors have a job. I think I'm owed this because my neighbors have this or my family has that. And God's like, hello, am I not enough for you? They go, well, actually you're not. We want a king. Earthly king. And God goes, okay, be careful what you ask for. But that's a story for a later day as we journey through this, this story but it opens our eyes and our hearts to the reality of how quickly we run away from God. Because they're looking to an earthly king to save, them, to save them, to give them some identity and some status. God was not enough for them. My question is, is God enough for you? And praise God that God did not give up on them even when they said, God, you're not enough for me. And he will, not do, he will do the same thing for us. It points us to our need for a savior and to ultimately to Jesus Christ who can save us. Again, this is not just their story, it's our story. It's an issue of obedience, which ultimately obedience is an issue of reverence. Reverence means worship. Again, this is a war of worship for our hearts. Who are you following? What God are you serving? Where are you finding your identity? Worship means ascribing worth. We need to elevate God today. We'll see that throughout the text. To understand, uh, and understand the story and the ones that are to come, I, I, to understand some roles of leadership in the Old Testament. In the, uh, so in the nation of Israel, there are four positions of leadership. Um, one of them was a judge. A judge won't figure so prominently in Samuel, uh, but does in other books. A judge was a leader who settled disputes and led all of God's people. Next was a prophet. Uh, Samuel becomes a prophet. Um, prophet is a spokesperson for God who, who declares God's ways and God's words to God's people. Thus saith the Lord, right? The prophet says, praise God for that. A priest is another role. It's a role in an office. It came from the tribe of Levi. They made the sacrifices. They were the spiritual intermediary between God and his people. They made the sacrifices from God, his people to God. They mediated between God and his people and ultimately taught God's people about God's law and God's word. They organized the worship at the temple and the tabernacle. And and there was finally a king. The king was a political and military leader who was the primary decision maker for the people. Now, all of these roles served in some way uh, to, as both a representative of God to God's people and a roadmap to God, a roadmap pointing directly to the one who was to come, Jesus Christ, who is our ultimate high priest, who is the ultimate prophet, and who is the one and the true king who died the price for our sins that we could not pay, the perfect sacrifice, and now was risen and now reigns on the right hand of the throne of God. Praise God for that. Now, as God's people now, we have direct access to God because when Jesus died, the temple curtain was torn in two and we can go directly to God. We don't need a priest. But we have the same struggle in the wandering hearts from God that the people of God in Israel are talking about today. Now look with me, if you would, at 1 Samuel, the first eight verses. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. There was a certain man of the Ramathian Zophin of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jerome, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zelph, an Ephrath, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Peniah. Peniah. And Peniah had children, but Hannah had no children. And now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of Hoists at Shiloh. 
where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day where Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penaniah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, and though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. And so it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than 10 sons? The story of 1 Samuel is the story of, of the birth of a boy who became a prophet. The birth of a boy from humble beginnings from the hillside country that no one would look for and no one would expect. He became the leader of God's people, the voice of God who God used mightily of God, all because his mom from the farm country from the hillside in her hurt and in her pain chose to put her hope in the one, the true God. Friends, can I tell you that God wants to do things far greater than you could ever hope or imagine. As we open up this story, can you imagine that Hannah would one day even conceive of the reality that she would in fact give birth to a son and that son wouldn't be any son, but that son would be used by God to become the prophet of God's people, the kingmaker, literally installing kings and leading God's people into various battles. It's mind-blowing, right? Don't doubt the power and the plan and the promises of God. But all of it came because in the darkness, before any of that was guaranteed, Hannah made decisions on her journey for hope. The Lord is mentioned over 60 times in the first three chapters of 1 Samuel. You think he's a main character? Yup. He's constant. I love verse three. I love how this story starts because it is an anchor. It is a tone setter for the rest of this story. Now, this man used to go up year by year, so they would make a yearly pilgrimage to the temple to worship and to sacrifice to who? The Lord of hosts at Shiloh. Now, God has many, many names in the Old Testament and the New, but one of them specifically is this, the Lord of hosts. This is a declaration in a battle that continues. A victory has been won, but the battles rage on that God is in control. You know what Lord of hosts means? It means that our God controls the angel armies, that our God is in control of the host of angels that, that reign in the spiritual realm and that fight the battles for us. And he has control over every earthly army. It means that God fights for you. And if our God fights for you, who can be against you? Amen. So in all the battles that are to come, the giant Goliath, the Philistines, Saul chasing David, anchoring in the reality that our God is the Lord of hosts, gives us hope, does it not? It is not by mistake that he's referred to as the Lord of hosts right here. It's a battle for our hearts. Is God the Lord of hosts for you? He is. But do you view him that way? Do you ascribe the worth? Do you worship him for that? He's in command even when we're not. He is in control over every circumstance of our life. He is sovereign over every situation. And now it, it describes, it continues to describe that Elkanah is a husband here. He's of Ephraim, which is hill country. It's farm country. And it said he had two wives, Hannah and Peniah. Now, before we get on, this is a different sermon for a different day, but it's important to note that while polygamy was permissible in the Old Testament, it was not ideal. God design, God's design for marriage is still the same as it always was. One man, one woman, one lifetime. 
but it was allowed. And, and what happened here was Hannah was unable to have children. She was listed as known as what is called barren. And Peniah had multiple children. Worse than her, Peniah having multiple children, she, the text teaches us that she rubbed it in Hannah's face all the time. Verse six, and her rival, it actually describes these two women as rivals, used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. Not only was she rubbing in her face, she did it with the intent of, draw, of irritating her. That's, that's not cool, right? So, and it went on, not just once, but year by year by year. And every day Hannah woke up, she was reminded of the reality that she could not bear children. And that was in that time and day and age, catastrophic. To put this significance into context, to struggle with infertility at any time is immense. It's immensely difficult. It's immensely painful. I believe that it's one of the most painful things that any person can walk through. And if you have walked that journey, or if you are walking that journey, I want you to know we love you and we're with you. That God sees you, that he knows you, that he cares for you. That you're worthy of love, that you are fearfully and wonderfully made, that God knit you together and he did not make any mistakes, Psalm 139. You are beautifully and wonderfully made. And the God who created you is a God who will sustain you. And I can't take the pain away from you. I wish I could, but we can walk with you and we will. And to struggle with infertility and to be barren in biblical times carried with it some intense and immense cultural implications. According to the Jewish Talmud, a person without children was considered, quote, as good as dead. Barrenness was even then, then was a legitimate reason for divorce. This is a big deal. This is heavy. This is self-worth and society defining. Now, why was having children, especially sons, viewed as immensely important in that day and age? A couple different reasons. One of them was Israel's society was agrarian. They worked the land. And so as you worked the land, as you farmed the land, more kids, especially more sons, guess what? More product, more crop, more revenue, more status, more positions, so on and so forth. Secondarily, there were no IRAs or 401ks and the kids were the retirement plan, right? Who's gonna take care of mom and dad when they get old? Well, the kids are. There's a responsibility culturally. If you don't have kids, what? good luck. Thirdly, kids were necessary for your survival. As we're gonna see in this text, war after war after war. You know who forms armies? Kids, people, men. The armies needed men. Men came from the people. So women that could not have kids were shamed. Women that had kids and many kids were honored. Identity was wrapped up into, in, often into biological productivity. How sad is that? And I understand that sometimes today that battle still rages, maybe for different cultural reasons, but it's severe. God wants you to know that he loves you and that you're enough no matter what you can or can't do or what he allows or doesn't allow. In this time and day and age, barrenness was often a metaphor for hopelessness. Hannah was searching for hope. She, there, and culturally, there was not a lot of significance. Hannah had felt shame, disappointment, and grief, and it was rubbed in her face relentlessly, so much so that this, verse six, and her rival used to provoke her grievously. That word grievously literally means thunder and roar. So Hannah's emotions literally swirled around her on a daily basis, like in, as if she was in the middle of a hurricane. They were that strong. 
So much so that this word grievously, the, the Hebrew word that it's used for, is not used in any other place in the Old Testament that does not refer to a physical storm. Every other place it talks about a storm. This is talking about emotional storm. She was in a hurricane, and maybe you are today too. I don't know what you walked in here with, what you're carrying, what sources of shame, past, present, future, the deepness or what the yearnings that you have that are causing this emotional storm what others in this society might mock you about or throw in your face or try to irritate you intentionally or unintentionally, where you feel helpless to, maybe it was something done to you, maybe it's infertility, maybe it's a desire for kids and unable to have them, maybe it's a health situation, maybe it's a desire for a spouse and not able to have that right now, maybe it was something someone did to you when you were growing up, maybe it, it I don't know, maybe it's something about your body, an illness that you were born with, or some physical deformality that, that in, leads to feeling worthless. Leads to feeling less than. Shame and guilt, depression, distress. Hannah gets you, that is Hannah right here. She was grieving so deeply. She was not eating. I just want you to know Hannah gets you and God loves you. And he has not left you nor forsaken you and he is with you now and, and always. He will walk with you and he will comfort you. Now men, and I do mean men, literally, in a seminar of how not to help a hurting spouse, Elkanah gives us two prime examples. Example one, when you see your wife in distress, don't just give her more food. Right, right here, it says this. It says, he loved her so deeply because she had gone and closed her womb that he gave her a double portion of food. Now, sometimes chocolate helps, right, ladies, right? But the final solution cannot be just more, a food addition. <laughs> and nor can it be this. Verse eight, Elkanah, her husband, Elkanah said, Hannah, why do you weep? Why don't you eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than 10 sons? Don't go there, guys. <laughs> Just don't. I have that t-shirt. It's not a good one. <laughs> it doesn't help the hurt. Sit in it. Pray. Love. Be. Just go there emotionally. Care. It, it doesn't mean that your spouse doesn't love you. It just means that there's a deep hurt. It's a spiritual hurt at its core. No spiritual hurt that can be solved with a physical object. And if you're in that moment, you might feel like God is distant. He's not. Paul talks about it this way. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord and Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4. The Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us all in our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort that which we ourselves are comforted by God. Understand this, that the presence of difficulty and adversity, pain, does not necessarily neglect the presence of God in the midst of those things. And the presence of God doesn't necessarily neglect the earthly physical pain. We have to be able to sit in both worlds and not just, God's here and you shouldn't be feeling that way. No, the pain is real. It hurts. And that puts it lightly. We can't brush by the depth of the pain, but we can't throw out the baby with the bath. We cannot throw out the presence of God just because of the presence of pain. 
The God is a God of all comfort. He comforts us in our affliction. He, not all the time does he remove the affliction because sometimes he's working in and through the affliction to do something far greater. And he, we're going to see that right here. But he jumps in. Why? Because he actually never left. There is hope for the sad heart, the hurting heart. I don't know what your heart's like today. Hardened heart, the grieving heart, the broken heart, the rebellious heart, the searching heart, the sinful heart, all through the comfort and the love and the presence of the unconditional loving heart of our Savior. Because remember, in my barrenness, God always demonstrates his faithfulness. So we have Hannah right here, broken, weeping, grieving. And how do we find hope in the hurt and the heartache of this world? Hannah's experiencing it, and you might be experiencing it too, but right now we're going to see a pathway to hope. Three sets of decisions she's going to make, and I would encourage you to follow her example. As hard as they are, they're freeing, they're life-giving, they're hope they're God-honoring. It's a desire to worship. So here, here is the pathway to hope. Here's the roadmap that Hannah provides for us as we're searching for hope today. The first set of decisions to make, and as we see in the life of Hannah from the text today, is this. Get up and show up. We look with me at verse 9 and 10. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose, and now Eli the priest was sitting at the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord, she was deeply distressed and she prayed to the Lord and she wept bitterly. Now, Eli's a priest and more on him, he's going to be a prominent figure in the next couple chapters and next sermons over the next few weeks. He's at the temple, but something significant happens. Often the first step on our journey to hope is the hardest, is it not? Or journey anywhere. You want to, you want to work out, right? And the alarm goes off at four or five in the morning. What's the first step that's the hardest, right? Getting out of bed. You want to read the Bible? Opening the Bible. Often the first step is the hardest. And they just eaten this meal. Actually, Hannah hadn't eaten, but they had gone through this, this meal time. And at verse 9, after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah, in your Bible, I would underline this, highlight it, circle it if you have it. She rose. And this isn't just like, I'm going to get up after a big meal. And I'm going to take a nap. I'm going to go watch the game. I'm going to go for a walk. No, in the Hebrew, this word literally means she got up. Your text might say she made a decisive action, which is what the Hebrew says. She determined that my weeping, my bitterness, my hardness, my hurt, it will not define me. I, I have, I'm struggling with it. I, it has power over me. It's very real. But she made the decisive action to get up and then to show up. Where did she show up? At the temple. She went into the presence of God, the place where the Lord was at that time, where you went to meet with God. She went to that place. Now, we, God will meet with us anywhere right now, right? Because of the work of Jesus Christ. And that thing, you went to the temple, you went to the temple, you went to where the house of the Lord was. She showed up in the presence to seek the presence of God. She ran to her heavenly father. And she went as she was. And what was she? She was deeply distressed. She was grieving, the text says. She was weeping and she was doing weeping bitterly. She didn't allow those things to prevent her from coming to God, and how many of us have done that, are doing that, but she allowed those things to propel her to God. When we say at harvest, come as you are, it means this. Come in brokenness. Come in bitterness. Come grieving. Come when the world is offending you. Just come into the presence of God because you will be met with the unconditional love of God where you are. We welcome without judgment, and so does God. That's his heart. Isn't it awesome? 
But how many times have you and or others allowed these things to keep us away from God? Where have you been knocked down by the circumstances around you, beaten up by the reality of the fallenness of this world and allowed it to just stay down, so weighed down by grief and shame and guilt and pain inside you that you stop going to God's word. You stop going to church. You stop going to small group. You stop opening up to people that love you and to a God that saves you and created you because it hurts too much or you're scared or the defense mechanism is to put walls up. Can I tell you this reality, loved ones, and I mean that in every aspect, but Satan, when he isolates you, he gains power over you. Physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. You have to choose to get up. You limp, hobble, come, but come as you are. Hannah didn't wait for life to get better to go, God. She went to life because God, because life was hard. She went to God and searching for hope. Hope is not the absence of hard circumstance, but the presence of God in the middle of hard circumstance. What are the areas of your heart right now that you're putting off going to God in? Maybe you're going to God in a little bit, but not all of it. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's, it's a, a desire for a spouse. Maybe it is a yearning and struggling with either raising kids or desire for kids. Maybe it's something about health. Maybe it's your future. Maybe it's your job. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe it's shame or guilt or whatever it is in your past, but today God's message to you is just come. Come, come as you are and be met where you are. Come in your bitterness and come weeping and I will meet you where you are and I will change you through my love. Go to God's word, go to God's church, go to God's people. Eli is gonna provide a word of encouragement to Hannah. God's pe- God uses God's people. We are called to encourage one another. We are called to bear one another's burdens. N- neither of those things is done great at distance. Yes, technology helps, but we need to get up and we need to show up and we need to open up more on that in a second. But what are those areas in your life? And if you're watching or you're here, maybe it's years, it took everything I have to be here this morning. Thank, I'm just so thankful that you're here. God wants you to be here because he provides hope for you. And in my barrenness, God demonstrates his faithfulness because getting up and showing up is the first step, but it's not the final step. The second step on my set of decisions on my journey to experience hope today is this, is to then open up and lift up open up my heart. After I get up and show up, I make the decision to open up. I can sit in small group. I can sit in church with things weighing me down and never ask for prayer about it. Never get real, never get authentic. There are lots of reasons why, because time becomes too short. I got other priorities. It's going to be too hard, but you are missing out on the hope that God has for you when you're holding out on opening up about the reality of what is happening and going on in you. Don't do that. Make the decision like Hannah. She showed up in, in weeping. She showed up in, bitter, in bitterness. She showed up deeply distressed. She showed up when her emotions were such a storm around her. She showed up. And look at what happens. Beginning in verse 11. And she vowed a vow and she said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but I will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth and Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her as a drunk, to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, 
I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman for all I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Vexation is heavy anxiety, deep, 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 deep anxiety and troubledness. Then Eli answered, go in peace and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. And then the woman went on her way and ate and her face was no longer sad. She decided to, in her struggle, in her deep anxiety and vexation, in her troubled spirit, she opened her heart to God. She, and she lifted up her troubles to God and she lifted up her eyes to God. How do we know that? Look at her prayer in verse 11. And she took, she vowed a vow and she said, O Lord of hosts, there's that phrase again, there's that name of the name of God again. Her first statement in her prayers was to claim the character of God, to lift up and say, I know you are still God even when my life is not good. I know and I claim today that you are in control, that you are fighting for me. And she continued, right? That you will indeed look on the affliction of your what? Your servant. This is a heart of surrender. She is establishing the reality that God is God and that she is a servant, which means a bond slave. Let it be unto me. God, this is not my desire. This is not what I want. In fact, I'm asking you to provide me what I want. But at the end of the day, I surrender. I look up and I surrender my desires under your authority and under your sovereignty because I trust in the reality that what you want for me is better than what I want for myself. She vowed a vow, and, and you want more information on this? Read number six. It's, it's essentially a Nazarene vow, which says she is dedicating, if you give me a son, I will dedicate my son to the Lord. I will give my son literally away. She's opening up her heart so much so that in her brokenness, she is bearing her soul, the text says, to such, in such a fervency that the priest thinks she's drunk. She's passionately pouring out her soul. When was the last time you did that to God? She's weeping, but she's worshiping as she weeps because she's elevating God in the middle of her problem. This is so powerful and so convicting. She says, I do not regard me as may a worthless woman. She's dropping an anchor in her identity. I am not who that other sister wife says I am. I am who you say I am, God. I am not worthless, but I am worthy of love. And God, I trust you in the middle of my storm. The pathway to peace is prayer, friends. In my brokenness, my soul isn't put at ease by finding hope or seeking solution or numbing my pain through a bottle, through a pill, through just more credit card purchases or getting a boat or getting a golf clubs or booking a vacation. Some of those things can help for a minute, but none of those things will actually change your heart. Only Jesus Christ can change your heart. Only by opening your heart to God can you experience the hope and the joy and the peace that he wants for you. Our hope is not in our circumstances, in our God, the Lord of hosts, who is in control over every one of our circumstances. He is compassionate and he is in control. He is in control of, of, over every single person no matter where you come from or what your background is, Hannah, culturally, she had no standing. She had no status. But in the eyes of God, she mattered. And so do you. 
And what's on your heart matters to God. God cares about those that are from the farm country and those that are from the metropolitan areas. He cares about everyone from the big city to the little cities. He cares about you because he created you and he sent Jesus to die for you. Friends, will you open up your heart to God today? Will you choose to trust God? And I love this prayer in verse 11, and I'm just imagining the prayer going something like this, if you don't mind a little bit of leeway here, right? Because Hannah Hannah knew the the background of her people, and she knew the character of her God. Imagine this prayer. She says, God, remember me. Imagine praying a prayer like this. God, remember me. God, you are the God of of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We We sang that song earlier, right? God, you are the God of Abraham. And God, today, you're also not just the God of Abraham, but you're God of Sarah, his wife who herself, like me, was barren. You had given Abraham a promise and you promised to be faithful, but Abraham and Sarah couldn't see the promise so much that they, they tried to do it themselves and they messed up along the way, but you were still faithful then. And in their old age, you did what society said it, you couldn't be done. You gave them a son. Praise you, God, that God, you've done it before. Do it again in my life, amen? And the son that was born from Abraham and Sarah, his name was what? Isaac. And God, you are the God of Isaac and you are the God of Isaac's wife, Rebecca. And by the way, God, you are the God of Rebecca who herself was also barren, just like her, ma, her Sarah and just like I am. God, you've done it before. God, do it again. And out of the womb of Rebecca, you continue to fulfill your promise. And out of the womb of Rebecca, you birthed Esau. And who? Jacob. And Jacob, whose name later became Israel, that you changed. The country of which, the nation of which I represent, your people, God. He had a wife and her name was what? Rachel. And Rachel's was what? Barren too. God, the God of the patriarchs, God, all of three of them had wives who were barren just like me. And you opened Rachel's womb and out of Rachel's womb came whom? Joseph and Benjamin. And you used Joseph to literally save the world. God, you've done it before. God, do it again in me. But through all of that, I trust you because I've seen your trail of your faithfulness through it all. And friends, that God who has been faithful then will be faithful today, amen? The God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, the God of, it's not just the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it's the God of Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Hannah, who in their barrenness went to the Lord and God in his faithfulness broke through and worked and he will break through for you. You might not get what you specifically want, but you will get what God's best is for you. Will you open up your heart? You've done it before, do it again. Come as you are, not as you aren't. God loves you where you are. He meets you where you are. He meets you in the wanting and the waiting, and he changes you. The power of prayer, I promise you, if you open up your heart and you pray to God, you will be changed. Your circumstances might not change outside of you, but the internal circumstances, you want hope? Pray. How do we see that? Look at this text. Look at what happens. It's so beautiful. Look with me at verse 17. Again, Hannah came into the presence of God, into the house of God, and she came in distressed, weeping, and bitterness, grieving, broken, troubled in spirit, like you name it. And she leaves this way. Verse 17, Eli answered her, go in what? Peace. She entered in anxiety. She leaves in peace. Why? Because she encountered God. And that's not it. Eli answered, and this is a power of biblical community. 
This is why when we have a word for one another, we, can, we have the power to encourage. Ephesians 4, 29, build each other up. Preach the word to each other. Preach the word to our own heart. Encourage one another. Bear each other's burdens. Eli goes, go in peace in the God of Israel. Grant your petition that you've made to him. And Hannah's response, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went on her way. Look at what she's doing right here. And what did she do? She couldn't eat before. She eats now. And what is it? And her face was what? No longer what? Sad. Now, she had no promise that a baby was coming. She had no promise that her prayer was actually going to be answered, but she had experienced the Lord and no longer was her hope anchored in the outcome of her prayer in terms of the object and having a baby. Her hope was found in the one, the true God that will never leave her whether she gets what she's praying for or not. And out of that, she is no longer sad, but she has joy. So she went in hopeless. She went out hope filled. She went in with anxiety. She left with joy. She went in broken up and she went out in peace. Our God's awesome, is he not? Everything changes when you encounter Jesus Christ, when you encounter the one true God. Come as you are, not as you are. Open up your heart. Look up to God. Lift up your heart and your prayer. The definition of biblical hope that we use often here is this, is that biblical hope is my confident expectation in the future, for the future based on the revealed character of God, the promises of God, the power of God, the faithfulness of God, and the actions of God. That is Hannah right now. And that hope is available for you too as you make these choices. And flip with me if you would to verse 19. The next verse, they rose early in the morning. And what did they do? And they what? Worshiped. Again, no promise of a baby, no presence of a baby, but the presence of worship. She chose to worship while she waited. Will you worship while you wait today? Will you ascribe the worth to God that he is? God is always worthy of our praise. In the search for a, uh, uh, the answer to a health situation, in the search for a spouse, in the search for a child, will you today choose to worship while you wait? God is always worthy of our worship. And God continued to work, and they went back home, and Elkanah knew Hannah. That word knew is, the, the Bible's very direct, but it's not vulgar. It means they had relationships, right? And his wife and the Lord remembered her. That word remember means to, she, he called her to mind. And in verse 20, and in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And they, she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked him for him from the Lord. There are so many reasons that we have to not open our heart to the Lord. It's out of fear, out of worry. I just had a tired, out of, we don't want to get vulnerable again. We don't want to get disappointed. When you open your heart to the Lord, you will never get disappointed if you are putting your hope in the Lord. If he is the one truly on the throne of your heart that you desire the most, you won't be disappointed. Psalm 37 teaches us when we delight in the Lord, he'll give us the desires of our heart. Often we get it wrong. We, just, we want the desire and then we choose to delight, friends. That's wrong. Joy is found when we choose to delight and then God gives us the desires because often he, he changes what we actually desire. This name of Samuel means God has heard. Isn't that awesome? God has heard. He heard the vow, he heard the cry and he answered. The name of Hannah means woman of grace, woman of favor. Imagine that name when you were barren, feeling like I don't feel very favored by God, grace filled by God right now but God is still working and he's doing it work. And he moved in such a way that he brought Hannah to a point. He worked in the circumstances to do an amazing work. So how can I have, how is three realities of God's faithfulness from this story that will bring me to hope today is this, that you might feel forsaken today, but you are not forgotten. The God that remembered Hannah is the God that will remember you right now, amen? Second, life is hard and life is hurtful, but God always hears you. The name of Samuel is the Lord hears, God hears. He hears your cries 
And that should give us hope. Third, even in our greatest adversity or deepest tragedy, God is writing a beautiful story. He did it with Abraham and Sarah. He did it with Isaac and Rebekah. He did it with Jacob, later Israel, and Rachel. And he's now doing it in Hannah. I, I believe that if the circumstances of this situation hadn't been what they were, would Hannah have truly offered, if she had a son from the get-go, would she have offered him to God like this? Probably not. And then God chooses to use Samuel in such a way that is just astronomically mind-blowing. God is always at work doing a beautiful work. It might not be how we want it, when we want it, or why we want it, but we need to trust him in it. That he's the author, he's a producer, and he will work. Friends, today, where do you need to open up genuinely to God? Where do you need to go to God? Maybe you need to open up to a friend and let's say, let's pray together. Maybe you actually need to open up in small group. Maybe you need to open up in whatever way it is to you and bear your soul to God and trust him and allow the peace of God, which transcends all understanding to guard your heart as you give him your petitions. And where do you need to lift him up today? What do you need to lift him up to? Because remember, in my barrenness, God always demonstrates his faithfulness. That's my confidence today. The third set of decisions on the journey to hope today is this. After I, after I get up and show up, after I, after I open up and lift, it up, lift up is this, is I need to give it up and I need to look up. Look with me at the last verses, beginning verse 21. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah and her, her husband said to her, do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And, and when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young and then slaughtered the bull and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, oh my Lord, as, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman, I am that woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord for this child I have prayed. And the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he has lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there, he being Samuel. This is awesome. Here we have this, a hope-filled reality is, is the fruit of a surrendered heart. You want a hope-filled life? It's a fruit of a surrendered life. We are, are with, what is a surrendered life? It's looking up and understanding the priority, the preeminence, and the position of God. And then trusting in his power and his promises. That's looking up. Hannah acknowledges God's sovereignty here and declares her heart's surrendered dependency. True joy comes through the heart, a process of genuine surrender. This process of surrender, first and foremost, acknowledges God's character. And then it responds to that in worship through reverence, dependence, and obedience. And we see that in the life of Hannah right now. She makes an amazing vow. And there's a big difference between giving up and giving it up. Don't give up. Don't stop persevering in prayer. Whatever is on your heart, don't stop persevering in prayer. God is at work. Don't stop hoping. Now, always open-handed, hold it open-handed. But that's giving it up, right? Don't stop. Get, stopping would be giving up. But giving it up goes, God, in this thing that I desire or this thing that I have, I give it to you. Use it how you would. I'm giving up control of this 
person or this thing or this relationship, this job, have your way, be glorified in it. Giving up is often walking away from God because it's too hard or I can't imagine my life without this thing and I'm not truly trusting God in it. God never changes even when our circumstances do. It's a worship issue. Now understand the depth of this decision. Understand this depth. Hannah, all her life, had yearned for a child. And she laid it down. She didn't lay down having a child, but she laid down having the child be able to work the farm around her. She laid down allow, being able to see this child on a daily basis when this is not like God use my kid however you would and, and that's a generic prayer. That's a great prayer to pray. Please pray that over your kids. We have a child dedication coming up in two weeks. We'd love to pray that over your family with you if you want to dedicate your children. This is a primary verse used in child dedication, a lot of them. For this child I have prayed, but look at the purpose of that prayer. This is a, I'm willing, when my child is weaned, which is about three years old, Mom and dad, get, let's get real. Three years old, I'm gonna give my child to live at the temple to be used by God and probably I will not see my child maybe, maybe, maybe if I'm lucky once a year, maybe. Imagine that. What you have yearned for your entire life is now I'm going to allow out of my physical presence, out of my eyesight, not out of my heart. I'm gonna give up on my retirement plan because Levites don't work the fields. They don't provide and they have a different calling. She laid it down and she didn't make this decision just once, she made it twice. She made it in the absence of her child in verse 11 when she said, this is my vow. If you give me a son, I will give it to you. And then she made it in the presence of her child again after God actually gave it to her and said, after three years, she followed through in obedience. Because how many of us, if we're honest, have prayed that prayer? God, if you give this to me, I will use it for your glory. God, if you've ever, get this out of the situation, I'll be in church every week, I'll, give, I'll start tithing. You know, you know that prayer, right? And how many of us are actually doing those things that we promised and we vowed to God? Again, obedience flows out of reverence. We have to make two decisions of giving it up. One in the absence of the object and then actually in, this, in the presence of it. Because what happens is, is this reality. And when we talk about worship and hearts, Anything that sits on the throne of my heart and takes God's rightful place as number one is what? It's an idol. It's an idol. Good things can be idolatrous things very easily. What are you allowing to be an idol in your life? Because in the absence of it, I can't imagine my life without it. I need it, I need it, I need it, I need it. And God's like, all you really need is me. But then in the presence of it, you have it. And you're like, I can't let it go. I can't let it go. I have to protect it. I have to, at all costs. And God's like, let me have it. And you're like, no, if you're really honest. Could be a job, could be a kid, could be a spouse, could be money, could be comfort, could be status, could be whatever it is. What is that thing in your life? Paul Tripp says it this way. Desire for a good thing becomes a bad thing when it becomes a ruling thing. Friends, this, your child can't save you and you can't save your child. Only Jesus can do that. Your spouse can't save you and you can't save your spouse. Only Jesus can do that. Your job can't save you and you can't save your job. <laughs> Only Jesus can do that. We're stewards and we're under shepherds. We're caretakers and we're disciple makers. Everything is God's. What is God asking you to give to him today? What is that one thing in your life that you're struggling to actually trust God in? What is that one thing in your life that you are refusing to genuinely give to God? Hannah followed through on her promise, will you? A lot of things can be idols. A lot of things can distract us or stop us or inhibit us on the mission that God's given us. 
For me, one of my idols that I experienced and went face to face with 14, 15 years ago was this, it was coaching basketball. You've heard me talk a lot about ball and coaching if you've been here a while. I love to coach, I love to compete, I love people, I love the locker room, I love team. There was a season in our life, late 2000s, where I was full-time on staff at a church. I was in seminary. I was coaching two basketball teams. I was, Anne was in grad school. We had one child and we just had a miscarriage. Yeah, how's that gonna work out? Anne actually came to me in love and asked me to not coach, to stop coaching. It was too much for our family. You know what my answer to her was? It was no. Because I justified it by the reality of the impact. And there was impact. God was working. Love those kids. I was dead wrong. I was dead wrong. Coaching had become an idol. It was a good thing that had become an idolatrous thing in my own heart. And a mentor of mine looked at me one day and said, Dan, here's the reality. There are a lot of people that could coach that team. Like, ouch. <laughs> There's only one person that can be a husband to your wife and a father to your kids, and that's you. You need to get your priorities in order. Praise God for his grace. Praise God for the grace of my wife. Repented of that. And I was wrong for that. I don't know what that thing is for you. Maybe it's a desire for something that you're unwilling to trust God and maybe it's a possession of something you have it, but you're unwilling to actually follow through. Could you actually walk and leave Samuel and walk away? Friends, at the bottom of your notes, you'll see this. To God today, I give blank up to you. We're gonna have a time of reflection here in a, in a minute or two. I wanna challenge you to fill that in. It's between you and God. You're not turning that in. You're not doing anything with it other than it's a, a heart of worship between you and God. Maybe it's a desire that you have. Maybe it's already something in your possession because again, giving it up, there are different s- steps. Maybe it's a desire yet to be realized. Maybe it's something broken that needs to be fixed. Maybe it's a marriage in disarray. Maybe it's a desire for this or that. And you go, I've tried to do it myself. And God, I'm going to ask you, just like Hannah did in my broken, I'm going to ask you to do what only you can do. I come to you in my distress. I come to you in my fear. I come to you in my hurricane of emotion. And I trust that you can work in whatever way you would have. Just tell me, instruct me, lead me, and I will obey. And maybe you need to bring it up to your small group this week for accountability. Maybe you need to actually show up to your small group this week and open up in your small group this week to allow God to work in you and through you in your small group this week so we can actually see God move in the powerful way that he wants to in your life, but you're not receiving it because you're not opening up. You're not showing up. You're not getting up. I love you. We have decisions to make. God wants to change your life. Let him. Adam, God came to Hannah in her brokenness and experienced healing. Where do you need to come and run to God today that you've been putting it off for far too long? I called my dad on a Friday and I talked to him and I asked him to tell me a story that he's told me many times, probably 10, 15 over the course of my life. I love this story and I wanted to make sure I heard the details again. I said, tell me about how you met mom. 
Tell me about what happened in that time where you had to make a decision. He goes, it like this, Dan, there was an amazing connection. It was like God knit the heart of your mother and I together. They were early 20s, probably late teens when this happened. They got married early 20s. And he said, we were in love. We were on fire for the Lord and we were about to get married and God presented an opportunity to your mother that was amazing. It was about a year long missionary experience overseas and that would have put our wedding on hold. Who know what have done that, our relationship. And when I heard that, honestly, I got angry at God. I went to bed angry and go, God, I love this woman. You've get, how could you take her away from me? How, why do you not love me? Have you been misleading me? I went to bed angry and I woke up convicted, he said, because God met me and he said, if you love Janice, who's my, my mom's name, as much as you say you do, don't you want my best for her, even if that's a life without you? And I was convicted, my dad said, that I've been loving Janice with a self-serving love. And I needed to love her with a self-sacrificing love. And God said, if you love her, let her go. Be willing to let her go because I'm more, I'm greater. But I said, in that moment, I opened up my hands and I said, God, if it's your best that Janice go on this trip and we not get married, I trust you with that. He gave it up because he looked up. Long story short, the mission trip fell through. They got married and everything else has fallen into place. But just like Abraham with Isaac, the son of the promise, when God said, sacrifice Isaac, and they got up onto that mountain and there was an altar and there were sticks and he was tied there and Abraham had the knife, right? Stop. I just wanted to test your heart to see if I was still number one, more or less is what God said. Or had your heart shifted to idolize your child more than me? Friends, God deserves to be number one in our hearts and lives, no matter what else is in our life. Sometimes he wants us to be willing to let it go and he still gives us that thing anyway, but it's in the heart decision of worship to lay it down, to give it up as we look up and surrender and worship. Would you close your eyes with me, please? In the next 30 seconds or so, as your head is bowed and you can open them again in a second, I want you to really ask the Lord what he's asking you to lay down at his feet and to give up to you today. What is he asking you to give up? What would you put in that line that Hannah gave up her son and you would say, God, today I give blank up to you. It might be something you already have. It might be a desire for it, but you realize it's teetering or it's already been an idol on becoming an idol in your life. That you go, God, today I trust you in this area or with this person or in this relationship. God, because I want to worship you more than anything. And I lay it down and I I look up and I give it up. And I ask that you would work in it for your glory. Just take these next 30 seconds or so, you and God. the Lord leads, write it down. And I would challenge you to share it with someone, just like Hannah did with Eli, in the presence of Eli and God, so that you can be encouraged and you can be held accountable. 
Father, in these moments, we just come to you in all of your greatness as, as, as our lives are, are a mess. We come to you and, and ask you for your mercy, God, as we come to you in your presence, God, we, we know that you change things. You transform the heart of Hannah. And I ask that you would transform our hearts today. You are a God of mercy and grace. You are a God of goodness and faithfulness. And God, right now we look to you and we love you. And God, we ask that you would break through. For, forgive me for far too long idolizing things that have threatened and or have at different times taken the place on my heart, in my heart that only you deserve. Forgive me for that, God. God, I confess them to you and I repent of them to you and I ask for your grace and your, your forgiveness. And I ask that you would light a fire again in my heart to look up, to lift up to you, to choose to live today for you, to choose to run to you. God, thank you for being God. Thank you for your loving faithfulness, even in my barrenness. It's in your mighty name that we pray. Amen.